Welcome everyone to this CNBC special, Battle for the Consumer. I'm Courtney Reagan. Jim Cramer's off tonight. You know the numbers. The consumer drives two-thirds of the American economy. But inflation is stretching that dollar and making consumers pick sides. Tonight, we've got every angle of the fight for your dollar covered as we look for investing opportunity. Ahead, the high-end retailer or the low-end? Will wealthy shoppers keep spending or start trading down? Plus, two years of sitting at home buying stuff? That was enough. This summer, many people getting back out there. But with summer ending and back to school starting, will we cut back on travel again? And Jim Cramer is going aisle by aisle, giving you his take on all the action. But first, the markets closing out a down week. The Dow down nearly 1% today. The S&P 500 slightly worse. The Nasdaq down 2% today, breaking a four-week winning streak. And it's been a huge week focused on the American consumer, what we're buying and where, what we aren't, and why. Walmart said its grocery sales are strong, with higher income Americans making up most of the growth. But sales in clothing, electronics, and home aisles, those are slow. Target's discounting hit profit more than expected, but they've convinced shoppers to buy apparel they might not have otherwise. It saw continued strength in food, essentials, and beauty. With decades-high inflation for food and fuel cutting into shoppers' appetites to buy clothing, it makes sense that Kohl's had a pretty tough quarter. More casual work environments and back-to-school led to a better quarter than feared for Foot Locker. It sold 50% more Crocs and New Balance shoes than last year. Take a look at that stock more than 20% today. Overall, retailers are taking action to course correct previously under-inventoried positions due to supply chain delays on top of consumers' changing preferences. Together, it's leaving bloated inventories, though, and compressed profitability as uncertainty swells about the all-important back half of the year for retail. The outlook for the economy is tied, as always, to the outlook for the consumers. Senior economics reporter Steve Leisman joins us with a look at the conflicting forces arguing for and against a healthy consumer in the second half. After holding its own in the first half of the year, consumer spending in the second half will be determined by a struggle between these macro factors now in the economy. While inflation-adjusted or real wages have generally not kept pace with inflation, and consumers have spent down excess savings from the pandemic, 3.2 million more Americans found jobs this year. That's 3.2 million more Americans and consumers with spending power. Stocks fell 30% from their highs, but they've bounced back recently. If they can hold their gains, it could ease the negative wealth effect on spending. Housing prices, though, are a major wild card. If they fall, they could make Americans feel poorer and spend less. Consumers have just about as much patio furniture and Pelotons as they need. But there's still pent-up demand for services that could drive spending in the quarters ahead. Inflation will trump all these factors. Gas prices have fallen for nine straight weeks. If they stay down, it could restore some discretionary spending power and some optimism. The trouble, though, with an optimistic scenario is this. The Fed needs the consumer to ease back in order to reduce inflation. And the Fed may keep hiking rates until consumers comply. Courtney, back to you. Thank you very much, Steve. Well, let's talk more about what retailers are telling us about the state of the consumer and bring in Jan Niffen. He's CEO of J. Rogers Niffen Worldwide and Steve Odlin, CEO of the Conference Board and former Office Depot CEO. He's also a CNBC contributor. Steve, I'm going to start with you. Steve had an interesting line there in his piece about consumers having enough patio furniture and Pelotons for now. And I know that the Conference Board data shows that shoppers' plans to purchase big items have declined. But is that really 
less about the fact that we don't have the ability to do so and more about the fact that we already did that during the pandemic with those bigger ticket items? Well, I think the stay at home kind of items like Peloton were, um, you know, pandemic related. The issue now is that inflation has really eaten away all discretionary income. And for the American consumer, the inflation has been double digit in food. And of course, everybody knows the gas prices. And even though they receded a little bit here, they're still significantly above where they were a year ago and, and before that. So the American consumer is rattled right now and they are ratcheting back. You see the high end doing very, very well. And then you see the low end. Interesting statistic, the fastest growing segment at Walmart, which is a barometer of the low end, are people making $100,000 and more. So people are actually trading down, even though they have discretionary money, to Walmart. And everybody in the middle is getting hurt. You see it with Kohl's and you see it with Target and others. And that's the state of the American consumer right now. Yeah, that is exactly what CEO Doug McMillan at Walmart did tell me about the interesting parts of the higher income consumer shopping at Walmart and the growth that he's seen therein with food. You know, Jan, you have an interesting point in your notes as Steve talks about inflation hitting us hard. You actually think we might have seen the worst of it. What do you mean by that? And what are the data points that get you there? Oh, I think we've seen the worst of inflation as far as retail goods because I think the oversupply that we're hitting now is driving down prices. The supply chain is unkinking. We've seen that with everybody's reports. We know that shipping costs are falling, containers are available, spaces for containers are available. All of those things have peaked and started down. The problem we've got is that we may not have seen the peak in wage inflation, and we might not have seen the peak in consumer services inflation. But if you're talking about retail goods, which is what I follow, they peaked in the first quarter and then inflation and that business is dropping. And if you talk about the consumer, they're struggling, but they did manage to put 8.9% on the bottom in July, according to the federal government, year over year. An 8.9% nominal increase in sales may only be flat units, but it's a consumer putting 9% more out of their pocketbook on the table. And that shows you the consumer so far is still pretty healthy. And we did see reports from Walmart, Target, HD, and Lowe's. That is the American consumer. How much do you have to know? And they told us all of those things were happening. They said trade down was happening, that the lower quintile consumer and the two bottom quintiles actually were struggling with the gas prices. But those upper three quintiles, their assets are still looking pretty good, and the stock market hasn't hurt them that much, and their home prices haven't fallen. That may all happen, but if it doesn't, that's going to be still a pretty healthy consumer through Christmas. Steve, you used to run a retailer. If you were running one right now, looking at this environment and all the uncertainty ahead, what would you be doing? What would concern you most? Yeah, so, you know, I think the question is, where is inventory at this point in time? You have some people with inventory in good shape, particularly the low-end items, but if you have anything in the middle, you're hurting. We used to say back to school was August and September. You've got October for Halloween, and then back, and then you've got the holidays starting November 1st. I think the holidays this year start in September as people start to have early sales, trying to clear this inventory and trying to get a head start here on the end of the year. Consumer confidence is down. Their confidence about the future is down, all driven by inflation. And even though we probably have hit a peak, 
it is still going to be quite high and all the way through next year, and then the Fed. So CEO confidence is impacted by the Fed. The CEOs believe that the Fed is not going to be able to engineer a soft landing, and it is going to drive a recession here in the fourth quarter and through into next year. Mm -hmm. As that happens, and CEOs back off the labor investment, they back off hiring, they back off capital investment. All of this, of course, hits GDP, and you know there we are. So I think uh, you know it's going to be a dicey next six months. Yeah, absolutely. And we did hear about uh, companies like Wayfair announcing layoffs. We know there's other issues there, though. Uh, Jan, before we let you go, I'm going to have you wrap it up and just talk just a little bit about the seasonality. I think it's important to dig into the details of some of these quarters. And that May and June were really hard. But in July, things did start to turn around a little bit. And maybe to your point, because we saw some peaking in some retail goods. So as we go here, is the worst behind us potentially in what the retailers had to deal with? A retailer like Target taking all of its medicine at once. Will the back half of the year maybe be a little bit better than some of these forecasts have been suggesting? I actually think the back half is going to be better than the forecasts suggest because unless we're going to see an enormous increase in unemployment, we're down to 3.5%. Even the bottom quartile's got a job and their wages are rising, some of whom are rising actually as fast as inflation. And they will spend that and the upper-end consumer has the money to spend. It'll only be if they're not confident enough, which we were just talking about. But those goods are being cleared pretty fast. And yes, we've still got inventory problems, but we're getting down to the point where we're having more normal inventory problems. We never thought we would be to the point of that period of time where we never had enough goods and we'll never have to take another markdown. That was just during the pandemic. Now we're coming back to where we've always been. You've got too much goods. You're going to have markdowns. Some people don't. Some people do. The upper end's in good shape. The middle's not in such a good shape. But we are going to see strong spending at the back end unless something happens to this consumer. Mm-hmm. They've got the money. They've got the credit borrowing capacity. They've got a job. Right. And in my world, when I was running retail, if you had a job and you thought you were going to keep your job and you thought if you lost it, there was another job out there, you spent for Christmas. <laughs> Things have been certainly confusing these last couple of years, but surprising in some good ways, I think, for retailers. Jan and Steve, thanks for helping us figure it out here tonight. Well, retail stocks are also getting hit, but not necessarily because of all fundamental issues. Stocks such as Bed Bath & Beyond and GameStop have been the recent target of meme traders as retail stocks have long been a focus for short sellers. Bed Bath & Beyond sinking today after activist investor Ryan Cohen sold his more than 7 million shares and options in the company. And amid the company's scramble for liquidation, reports just out that some suppliers are halting their Bed Bath & Beyond shipments due to unpaid bills. We've reached out to the company and let you know if we get more. Joining us now is Tom Sosnoff. He is founder and CEO of Tasty Trade. Tom, this stuff is just so confusing. And I, I have to admit, as someone that really studies the fundamentals of retail, does make me want to rip my hair out a little bit. We know that things at Bed Bath & Beyond are not necessarily smooth sailing. However, I also don't know that it was worth the sell-off that we saw this week. We know there's so much going on on Wall Street Bets and Reddit and what's going on with Ryan Cohen and the following that he has. Can you explain to us what is moving shares of Bed Bath & Beyond? And should they be moving? If you are an investor that wants to try to get in on this trade, what do you do? Well, it's it's almost an impossible question, but I'm going to give it a shot. So, you know, Bed Bath & Beyond, you have to put a little context around it. it it's only a billion dollar company at current prices, right? It's so, so it's, it, when you talk about the size of Bed Bath & Beyond, it doesn't take too much 
to move the stock up or down a couple of dollars. But I think when you get into the kind of like, let's call it frenzy that um, that Bed Bath & Beyond just went through the last couple of days. And when you look at where it is today, um, it's the expected move over the next month is only five or six dollars. It's I think it's like five sixty five or something. And that's based on current implied volatility of 200 plus 200 percent. So when you think of Bed Bath & Beyond, what you have to think about as an investor is you have to look just like you said, you have to look past the fundamentals and you have to think about it as here's a ten dollar stock with a 200 plus percent implied volatility. That means that the marketplace, if you believe in efficient markets like I do and efficient market theory and you believe prices are accurate, that means that the expected move at a 200 plus percent volatility is two times the upside as opposed to the downside. The downside, it can only go to zero. The upside with the 200 percent volatility means it can go to 30. And so it's priced accordingly that way. And I think that's what you saw in the last week was this incredible upside skew, as we call it, in the pricing. And you saw that type of tape action. Now, look, I'm not going to ask you to be an expert on on any sort of like insider trading allegations that are floating out there. I'm not making the allegations about Ryan Cohen, but obviously he got very publicly involved in shares of Bed Bath & Beyond in March. The company very quickly made some changes as a result. They changed the board around. In the time since, they did uh, push out their CEO, whether that was directly Ryan Cohen's involvement or not, I'm not sure. And then, of course, he said, look, I'm going to sell the stake and then shares move again. I guess my question is, if you're a trader and you're trying to follow the smart money, should you be following someone like Ryan Cohen? Or is that just too dangerous when you're talking about these retail stocks that are moving so swiftly, not necessarily on fundamentals? Well, I, I am a trader. That's all I actually do. <laughs> yeah. And and so and I did trade a lot of Bed Bath and Beyond. But I, I think you have to understand um, you have to take Ryan Cohn out of the equation if you're a trader, because, first of all, anything that he's going to say publicly, he's probably going to say it after he's already done whatever it is that he has to do or he wants to do. So. I think it's a. I think there's two things to recognize when you are trading stocks, and and you can call them meme stocks, you can call them stocks that have had this kind of move. But there's two really important things to do, and the first thing is whatever you do, stay small in your size, because forget about all the stuff you read about 20 year olds in college and hmm. Ryan Cones of the world. Just stay super small, then you can handle everything. And I think that's that's the single most important thing. The other thing is just recognize that that if everybody's on one side of the market. And this is how we think as traders, and it doesn't always work, but most of the time it works. You want to, you're much better off instead of trying to follow the trend or follow the fundamentals, Mm -hmm. you're much better off playing the role of a contrarian. Okay, fair enough. Well, Tom Sosnoff, we wish you luck out there with your trades. It's some pretty wild times in the retail Fingers crossed. I'm going to need it. Thanks. Thank you for being with us. Well, don't go anywhere. We are just getting started on this CNBC special, The Battle for the Consumer. Tonight, a game of high and low, consumer edition. Plus, score some points. We span the globe to find where those vacation funds are being spent. And Jim Cramer always has your back. He chimes in with a take that you won't want to miss. That and more on CNBC. are really price focused right now, regardless of income level. And the longer this lasts, the more that's going to be the case. We haven't had a demand problem so far, and consumers are definitely spending. So I think it's been self-inflicted wounds that have happened to certain retailers. I think the macro environment is a bit scary. 
stock market uh, inflation continues. Where we are seeing the biggest pressure in our business is that middle income customer. Interestingly enough, we're seeing our upper income customers be fine. In fact, we're seeing more customers and they're spending more, but we're feeling that pressure. The high-end consumer still feels good. The lower-end consumer is under a lot of pressure, the bottom quintile. But overall, I think you still have some very healthy spending going on. As you just heard, it's been a tale of two consumers this earnings season. This week's retail earnings were all over the map, with many higher-end retailers posting better results than mainstream retailers like Target and Walmart. Let's bring in, it's bringing in the question of whether the consumer is actually trading down despite this rocky economy. Let's bring in Michelle Meyer. She's chief economist for the MasterCard Economics Institute and Jerome Martis, director of consumer research at Refinitiv, to discuss what they're seeing. Jerome, I'm going to start with you. It is hard to sum up what we saw this week from retailers because it was a bit all over the map. But can you help us try to find some themes that we saw this week and what that might inform about what's to come next week from the retailers that we'll be reporting? Absolutely. It's been an interesting week, Courtney. And the discounters has been the one sector where analysts has been the most bullish. But when, but within that sector in itself, there's a clear distinction because analysts have been raising their estimates for the discounts, discounters that sell gasoline. And that's pretty much why Walmart has the upper hand on target. Um, Walmart um, has, a mem its membership income has risen 25.6% compared to a year ago when during a time when that membership saw a record count as opposed to Target, who actually missed in-store sales estimates. And we're seeing that those projections, even for the third quarter and the fourth quarter, we're seeing that the middle-class consumer is looking for value. They're cutting off those Netflix subscriptions and instead getting a membership at Costco, Sam's, and Walmart, you know, um, in order to save money at the pump. And when you dig deeper into the numbers, we're seeing that they're parking their cars after pumping gasoline, and they're going into the stores. And that's translating into stronger, stronger sales within the stores themselves. And that's what we want to see, the strong same store sales and that the gasoline prices is the key that is um, bringing, luring in those shoppers hmm. at the discounts that sell gasoline. Yeah, that's a good point. I was actually just looking up stock performances over the last week. Walmart up 3.6% to your point with the Sam's Club and the gas selling. BJ's Wholesale up 8%. Costco up 2.4%. Target, though, down 3.2%. Michelle, if I can turn to you and we can talk a little bit about the idea of the trade down. Target said uh, that they're seeing more interest in some of their private labels. They didn't break it down as far as Walmart went as to say that their private label food was actually growing at two times the rate at which they saw in the first quarter. And you heard there from my interview from CEO Doug McMillan saying how the higher end consumer is actually responsible for three quarters of the growth in food. Does that worry you at all about the high end potentially cracking? So look, I think what we're seeing now for the consumer is a consumer that's been faced for some time with relatively high prices in some categories, extremely high prices. So consumers are making those decisions. They're trying to weigh their options. You walk into a grocery store, you walk into a big box retailer, and you're going to decide. You're going to look at the price. You're going to try to understand how much that has increased relative to the last time you were in the store. And you're going to think about how much you want to spend when you're walking out of the store on aggregate. Um, and that makes a lot of sense. It's perfectly rational. You know, the consumer has been, you know, seeing these high prices now for some time. 
And it's shocking because the last several decades was all about disinflation. It was all about discounting. It was all about these deals. So it's a different mindset for the consumer that they have to react to. Um, at the same time, they're also seeing changes in their priorities around how they want to spend. In the post-pandemic period, right after COVID, you saw such a big influx of spending on goods, particularly these big ticket items related to the house. Now you're seeing a lot more on necessities in part because those prices have increased, but also very much on experience-based spending and all of the items that go around with it. So it's a consumer that's making choices and trying to navigate this economic environment. It's so interesting, Michelle. It feels like just a couple quarters ago, a lot of the retailers were sort of bragging about their pricing power and their ability to, to hold prices on the consumer that was so strong coming out of COVID. And now here we are in this period of high inflation and they're having to turn to discounts. With Jerome is sort of where I want to go with you next. We've got really bloated inventory. Some of it may be done on purpose to bring in more inventory ahead of the all-important end of the year for back to school and holidays. So they're not in the same position that they were last year with sort of empty shelves during that time because of supply chain disruptions. But you've got Kohl's inventory up 48%, Foot Locker up 52%. They're having to discount some of that that wasn't planned, which is compressing margins. So I guess when you put that together, what does it mean for the back half of the year, for the profitability of retailers, and then what consumers can expect when it comes to pricing? Will there be more discounts? Well, in a collaboration with Stalsage, Refinitiv discovered that indeed, in the second quarter of this year, the amount of merchandise on sale did go up significantly compared to the year-to-date average. The average discount did as well. However, going into August, which is the first month of the third quarter in the retail space, that average discount has come down to 35.2%. And this is key because this is still below that pre-COVID environment, the 2019 pre-pandemic era, when everything was discounted in, and the average discount was above 40%. Hmm. So what's gonna happen is the following. We saw that Target already had to make some sacrifices in order to move a lot of that inventory. Yes, profit margins did take a hit, but if the retailers continue to do so, and this is the mark of the first, the first month of the third quarter, then then what we can expect is that we will have a decent holiday season with average, um, good it. average discounts. Okay. But if, however, they don't, then we are going to go into a promotional era again as, as the pre-pandemic era. Certainly a lot of questions. Michelle here, b before we go, I do want to ask if you have any concerns about the broader economy as we're starting to hear a little bit more about layoffs. Wayfair today saying they may be laying off 900 workers. Walmart went through a couple hundred for corporate restructuring earlier. Does that give you any concern about what might be happening in the labor market? Well, this is an economy that's in the process of rebalancing. Just the conversation you had before about starting to see unwanted inventories, that's really indicative of how the economy is shifting and changing and responding to, to this post-pandemic period. So to me, when you look at what's happening in the economy, you see certain sectors like the housing market, where most data suggests it's already in a contractionary territory, autos, other types of big durable goods, certainly seeing a lot more weakness. And presumably that's going to spill over to the to the labor market. And that's what's happening. That's what you're seeing in these reporting. Um, in terms of the broad economy, it's, it's more resilient. You still have a lot of shock absorbers out there. If you look at the last jobs report, we had over 500,000 jobs created. Will it moderate? Sure. That makes a lot of sense. But will it be an acute 
you know, uh, reduction in, in the labor market where you see, you know, widespread layoffs. I don't think that's around the corner. It's a more gradual adjustment in the economy. I hope you're right about that for certain. Michelle and Jerome, thank you for joining us here this evening. Well, coming up, are consumers still packing their bags despite these economic headwinds? We're tackling travel just ahead. Plus, while cracks may be showing in some areas of retail, some big money is being parked in vehicles. We'll explain. rough few years for travel, COVID-19 weighing on the sector in a major way. And now all that pent up demand for travel is going to head to head with higher costs for flights, gasoline and so much more. Seema Modi joins us now with more. Hi, Seema. Hey, Courtney, it is no secret we've seen a big rebound in travel this summer with over 2.2 million people screened at TSA checkpoints last Friday. But as we transition from summer into fall, the key question is whether this travel demand will remain strong. A new survey conducted by TripAdvisor found that 37% of Americans still intend to travel as planned. That is an increase from 32% in May. But due to inflation and higher prices, more than a third of respondents say they will likely travel for shorter lengths of time and somewhere closer to home than previously planned. Top destinations according to TRIP, Las Vegas, New York and Orlando, Florida. Similar to what we've actually seen play out over this summer, where tourists are returning to big cities in a big way that's certainly pushing the average daily rate at hotels up in all of those three markets. It's also helped hotel stocks over the last month, up 11 to 15 percent. And so far this year, hotel giants have outperformed vacation rental competitors Airbnb and Expedia. Here's the question. Post Labor Day, we will get the first read on the return of business travel, a key revenue driver for hotels and real estate investment trusts like Pebblebrook and Host Hotels. Lastly, we're keeping a very close eye on the cruise lines, Carnival, Royal Caribbean and Norwegian Cruise Line, all three recently relaxing their COVID protocols and testing requirements. Analysts on Wall Street say this will provide a much needed boost to bookings in the next quarter. Courtney. Thank you very much, Seema. Very interesting. Some of those cruise lines had some pretty big drops today. Carnival down five and a half percent or so. Thank you very much. Well, for more on consumer spending and travel, let's bring in Brian Kelly. He's founder and CEO of The Points Guy. Brian, thank you so much for being here. Obviously, a lot of us have to pre-plan our travel, at least to some degree, when it comes to the big stuff, the flights, the hotels. Do you have any sort of indications of what this fall is looking like for what people are planning? Well, I have good news. Uh, the crazy flight prices that we saw this summer, you know, we were seeing month over month 20% increases in fares. Uh, we're seeing a cooling off of that, which is natural, you know, as uh, kids go back to school and people slow down travel. So we're seeing about 38% decrease in the average price of airfare. We're also seeing consumers still very bullish. Uh, recent surveys said 85% of consumers are still in a travel mindset. Now, may not be traveling right away, but people, even though it was the uh, terrible operational summer uh, where we saw plenty of meltdowns, people still want to travel. And I expect the holiday season uh, to be very popular. Very interesting. I, I sat down with the CEO of Walmart and he said, look, people are having to spend more on groceries and gas, but then the money they have left over, they're prioritizing it on things like travel. Where are we going? Are you seeing what Seema had brought up, maybe closer destinations that aren't quite as cumbersome to deal with COVID protocols going overseas or higher gas prices by going far away? 
Well, interestingly, it depends on the type of uh, customer you're looking at. The luxury travel, I mean, Americans flooded Europe this summer, especially since the euro is essentially on parity with the U.S. dollar, which, you know, hasn't happened in almost over 20, 20 years. So uh, Europe was really big and we're seeing the rest of the world uh, really reopen as well. The number one TikTok travel destination is Dubai. Uh, and we're seeing, you know, the return of solo travel and solo trips as most countries now have really relaxed the COVID regulations. But certainly domestically, we're still seeing, you know, Miami, the average hotel rate is up 60%. You're going to be paying $800 a night in Miami Beach on average, much more in, in many cases. Hmm. So, um, you know, people are spending on travel and the luxury travel segment, we're still at about 10% less total travelers yep. than 2019, but we've surpassed spending. So less people are traveling, but we've actually spent more on travel because the average price per trip has just increased dramatically. Okay, very quickly before we go, maybe we are spending more, but maybe not everybody wants to. Some quick tips for travelers to get some good deals. So the, there are still a lot of great deals out there. I always use Google Flights to hunt for the cheapest airfare. The best way to get a cheap fare is be flexible. Book, you know, travel during the week when possible. Uh, and Google Flights will actually give you an explore map where you can hunt for the cheapest fare. Say you just want to go to the Caribbean. It'll actually show you a map with different cities and destinations and the prices. So I say... You know, hunt for the cheapest fare so you save money and then you can spend more at that destination. I like it. Brian, thank you very much. Have a good Friday Thanks night. We're just past the bottom of the hour. Let's bring you up to speed on where we ended the week. All three major averages selling off today with growth stocks taking the brunt of the pain. With today's losses, the S&P and the Nasdaq snapped their longest weekly win streaks of the year. Plus, take a look at Foot Locker, the company getting a new CEO and the stock is soaring. Mary Dillon, who used to lead Ulta Beauty. Also on the board of Starbucks and KKR, she's going to take over September 1st. Don't go anywhere. This CNBC special battle for the consumer continues after the break. Coming up, don't start your weekend until you hear from Kramer. Next. And it's a bird. It's a plane. It's a car. We explain when we return on CNBC. Welcome back to the CNBC special battle for the consumer. Jim Cramer may not be hosting this hour tonight, but he never takes a day off from the markets. Here's Cramer's take on all the action. People always ask me, how do you judge what the American consumer's up to? A stupid question. What you do is you go to people who know more than you and I do. Let's say you go to a Target, and that's put together by Brian Cornell, who's very much in touch with his associates on the floor. And that represents America. Now, what do you see when you go in right now? Well, you see a lot of very nice apparel. You see a lot of home goods. Why are there home goods? Okay, it's pretty simple. Right now, he's up against Bed Bath & Beyond. We can competitor. He's a very competitive guy. You don't see a lot of TVs. Why? Well, those were the ones, the things that did so poorly, they were part of the inventory, just like grills, part of the inventory. Part of the inventory meant stuff they got stuck with that they had to get rid of because that's stuff that used to work when we stayed in our houses. Now we go out. And when we go out, we wear clothes that are different and we uh, shop differently and we go to restaurants differently. And Brian has got all that nailed down. So what you do when you go aisle by aisle by aisle, you see what is selling and what people want. They still want athleisure, but they want a little step up. They want to look a little bit nicer. Uh, they still want to go. They still want to play outside. There's still a lot of sporting goods. 
But the most, most important thing when you go into a Target right now, and I love it, is, is cosmetics. They uh, have a deal with Ulta, which is a stock that is so fantastic. And you will see that Estee Lauder is huge there, and so is Elf. So that makes you know that there you've got two winners that you should check on. Then you go over to the CVS that's there, and you see what they have. And you can see that Procter & Gamble is still taking up a lot of shelf space. That's one of the reasons why for the charitable trust, which you can follow if you join the the CNBC Investing Club, you'll see that we own a lot of Procter & Gamble. Line, aisle by aisle, line by line, toys. There are more toys right now in, in, uh, in, in Target than I have ever seen. Mattel, Hasbro, both up stocks. Levi's making a big comeback. Wrangler, which is Contour. I would look into those because I see that they have a lot of shelf space in a Target. Yes, you can go to a lot of stores. I mean, go look at go look at a Bed Bath. You won't get a single good idea from any of those places. That's like going to a Sears or Kmart. And if you take a look at a Walmart, well, they are uneven in what they sell. It's very, very difficult to make any money. If you go, uh, yes, I think if you go to Dick's Sporting Goods, what you'll do get a sense is that Nike's still great. But what you need to go is with quality merchants. You go with Brian Cornell, you go to Target, and you can figure out exactly what the American consumer wants. Well, thank you very much, Jim. Coming up next, a pulse check on the housing market. Home prices still through the roof, and first-time home buyers are feeling the heat. We'll break down the data after the break. We'll be right back. Welcome back to a CNBC special report, Battle for the Consumer. First-time homebuyers feeling some serious pain in sky-high housing prices. Diana Olick breaks down the data and what it could mean for the economy. From home building to home sales to mortgage lending, all of those numbers are dropping, leading the chief economists from both the home builders and the realtors to call a housing recession. Single-family home construction was nearly 19 percent lower in July compared with the year before, and building permits, which are an indicator of future construction, fell 12 percent. This, as builder sentiment, went solidly negative. The builders are done uh, building single-family homes for a while now. Their job is to uh, make sure they can sell that last eight months of supply that they have that are either under construction or not uh, started yet. The sticker shock of much higher mortgage rates, along with inflation, have buyers stepping back quickly. Homebuyer demand for mortgages is sitting at a 22-year low, and bidding wars are dropping fast. But prices are not. They're still up almost 11 percent from a year ago. List prices are getting cut, but in part, I think, because there's a lot of demand still for housing demographically and not enough supply of housing, we haven't seen prices go down. The price gains, however, are shrinking, and some builders said they're now starting to lower their prices by, on average, about 5 percent. Still, with home prices up over 40 percent since the start of the pandemic, it's going to take a lot more cooling to call any home today a bargain. Courtney? That is complicated. Thank you, Diana. Well, home buyers have been feeling the pressure in this real estate market. The retail real estate market is actually going pretty strong this year. REITs, many of which rent property space to retailers, have seen strong leasing and profit activity this year. With one REIT, Federal Realty, actually seeing their portfolio leasing increase year over year 
to now being 94% leased. Joining us now is Jeff Burks. He's president and COO of Federal Realty. Jeff, thank you so much for being here. So Diana talks about how some are calling for a home recession, which makes me feel a little nervous about the American consumer, the American homeowner's psyche. But your numbers are pretty good. What's going on with your retail tenants? If you can lease the space, it seems they must be selling their goods. Yeah, that's right, Courtney. And thanks a lot for having me this afternoon. I really appreciate it. Uh, and you you hit the, the nail on the head. You know, in our business, uh, the rubber really hits the road with leasing. And uh, coming out of the pandemic, we've had four to six quarters of really, really strong performance in our leasing. Uh, last quarter, in fact, we had a record number of deals uh, closed uh, by our leasing team. We're 94% leased. If you look at our small shop space, uh, you know, which is is maybe a little bit more sensitive to what's going on in the economy. The occupancy in that space is up 360 basis points year over year and almost 600 basis points since the depth of the recession. Hmm. Um, so, and let me give you a little bit of context on, on why I think that is. I mean, we... We've been around for a long time. In fact, we were uh, on the floor of the exchange a couple weeks ago celebrating our 60th year and our 55th year of consecutive dividend increases, due in large part to where our properties are located. Uh, we operate 25 million square feet of open-air retail space and 105 properties in the major markets on the East Coast, Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Washington, D.C., and South Florida and uh, the Bay Area, LA, and San Diego on the West Coast. And within three miles on average of our properties, uh, there's over $10 billion of income being generated. Uh, hmm. So there's a, a lot of people, uh, a lot of money. Uh, these are built out supply constrained areas. So uh, when you have those kind of dynamics, uh, tenants do very well. And uh, when space opens up in our properties and space was opened up as a result of the pandemic, the better tenants uh, uh, fly to quality and uh, unfill the space. And that's what we've seen happening now for the last year and a half or so coming out of uh, the pandemic. That makes sense, of course. And real estate location is everything. And being located close to a consumer that can pay for goods certainly helps in retail real estate. What does your tenant mix look like as you're signing these new leases? Are they sort of non-traditional tenants for the space? We hear a lot about different service operations going into traditional shopping areas. Uh, yeah, you know, yes and no. I mean, we've always been very, very careful about uh, a couple of things in our portfolio. One is having uh, a lot of diversity. We have uh, 3,100 tenants in our portfolio. No single tenant uh, accounts for more than 3% of our uh, base rent that we collect. And I think there's only seven that account for more than 1% of our base rent. And then we've always been, uh, and there's more art than science to this, we've always mm -hmm. been very good at merchandising our properties uh, and putting a good mix of tenants in that really meet the needs of the local uh, uh, market and the trade area, uh, the consumers that come to that property. And we've seen, you know, whether it's uh, on the East Coast, the West Coast, um, We've seen really strong, broad-based demand from a broad group of tenants, and certainly uh, some of that is service-based, um, but we've seen a lot of apparel demand, a lot of food and beverage demand. Um, it's, it's really been very broad-based and uh, uh, no geographic uh, 
specificity, if you will, to that demand. It's It's been throughout our portfolio. Huh. I'm less surprised about the food and beverage demand. Admittedly, a little bit more surprised about the strong apparel demand. That's interesting. As, of course, we've emerged from the pandemic, some of us have changed the way that we shop potentially forever, but maybe in the short term. Before we let you go, have you had to make any accommodations for some of your tenants, either new ones or existing when it comes to the lease structure, or even maybe the physical footprint, maybe retailers that are looking for more sort of warehouse type space to fulfill online orders out of retail stores. How has that changed since the pandemic yeah. quickly? You know, for us, uh, uh, to your latter point, not at all. Um, uh, everybody that's occupying uh, space in our center is selling from their space. They're not um, fulfilling out the back door, if you will. And I think that's due in large part to the fact that the areas where we're located are so densely populated. You know, people will come to the store and pick things up. And that's one of the great things we learned in the pandemic is how important the store is to a retailer's profitability. It's the cheapest way for them to distribute goods. It's also the cheapest way for them to acquire customers, uh, which is, you know, a, a large reason why, why leasing has been so strong coming out of the pandemic is the mm. importance of the store. Well, that makes a lot of sense. I know that running an online operation on the front side to people sort of looks like, oh, that has to be less expensive. But to your point, it's actually very expensive to acquire those customers, fulfill those orders and build those operations from the ground up when you're the one doing all the work, not the shopper. Jeff, thank you very much for joining us. You bet. Have a nice weekend, Courtney. Thank you as well. Well, after the break, a read on the top 1%, how inflation has impacted the wealthiest of consumers and the super expensive supercar market. That's after this break. Plus, don't go anywhere. The news with Shepard Smith kicks off at the top of the hour. The CNBC special report will be back right after this. Welcome back. While inflation has weighed on most consumers, it doesn't look like it stopped the top 1% from spending big money on supercars. Robert Frank is here with more. Always a tough assignment for Robert. Hey, Courtney, great to see you. Well, along with old classic cars like this one, the luxury car companies launching a whole slew of new models here in Monterey this week. We spoke to the CEO of Lamborghini. He says he's meeting with a lot of his customers, and right now he is seeing no signs of slowdown in demand or reduce confidence. The demand is still very strong, as on, a, on the highest level ever seen. And also, um, the used car value is uh, almost over sticker price of the new one. So uh, we are not seeing a slowdown, but we are uh, very cautious. Lamborghini also launching a new high-performance SUV. Price tag on that, $260,000. The company has only raised prices by 2% a year on its cars. I asked the CEO why they don't raise them more given the higher material costs and, frankly, the wealth of their consumers. There is also a time when the market is going down and then you cannot reverse. So it's good to be cautious. It's good to have a medium long-term strategy. Um, we are going to change all our lineup. So we're having the biggest investment in our history. And the, the last thing we can afford is to lose the trust of our customers. And right now, there is no caution by this top 1% consumer. Bugatti today launching a $5 million supercar. They just launched it a few hours ago. Courtney, it is already sold out of all 99 cars that they will produce at 5 
million dollars each. Oh my gosh, that is pretty mind-blowing, Robert Frank. You know, I thought that there was a very interesting point made in that piece that the used car market for some of these high-end luxury cars is almost surpassing the sticker price of a new car. Forgive my ignorance, but if you're in the market for one of these types of cars, is this not a depreciating asset then? Is this something you actually could turn into an investment asset? Absolutely, and that's why you see a lot of these collectible cars that are 2022 models because what people have done is they've gotten delivery of a Ferrari or Lamborghini or McLaren and flipped it for 30 to 40 percent more until we see weakness in that pre-owned market to get maybe not below the price of a new car but at least closer then we're not going to see any reduction in demand when you buy a new supercar today you're going to wait at least a year and a half so there's just way more demand and wealth than there is supply of these supercars. So see, even the rich have to wait for their cars too, just like the rest of us waiting for just those basic models. High class problems. Exactly. Robert Frank, thank you very much. Let's take a look at the markets here on this Friday as we end the day. The Dow Jones Industrial Average ending lower by just about under a percent. S&P 500 down more than one. The NASDAQ, though, taking it on the chin, down more than 2%. That does it for us this evening. Thank you for watching the battle for the consumer. The news with Shepard Smith starts right now.